Welcome to Garden People with your host, Jill Sowards of Violet Air Studio. Join us each season as we speak with your favorite garden people, designers, florists, growers, naturalists, chefs, artists, and more about how gardens have shaped their lives and informed their work today with seasonal tips, expert recommendations, and lots and lots of plants. To learn more, go to our website at violetairstudio.com. You'll find episode information, our seasonal journal, class list, and seed offerings. Everything you need to start your own garden story. This week I'm joined by Philippa Stewart of Just Dahlias, located in Cheshire, England. Philippa's passion for dahlias is infectious. She's an enthusiast first and foremost and turned her personal dahlia obsession into a thriving business where she provides incredible blooms, both cut and dried, to florists and dahlia lovers in the UK. Her commitment to supporting the natural ecosystems around her flowers is especially inspiring, producing gorgeous blooms in a way that is best for the bees and butterflies too. Welcome to Garden People, Philippa. So happy to have you. That's a pleasure. It would be really nice to chat to you. So to begin, can you please tell us a little bit about your work and just dahlias? Okay, so I started growing dahlias in my garden many years ago because my, my garden is very much a spring garden. And I found that I got to July and it looked tired. It looked like it was ready to go to bed for the winter. Just had nothing happening after July. So somebody said to me, oh, why don't you try dahlias? And I thought, oh, they're a bit old fashioned and a bit funny. But I got a couple of, well, not a couple, maybe I got about five or ten of the dinner plate varieties and started growing those. And obviously, what's not to like about something that's 30 centimetres in diameter? I got completely hooked by that. So at the time, I was also growing veg in my vegetable garden. And once summer, I thought, well, instead of having a glut of carrots and courgettes, it'd be much nicer to have a glut of flowers. So I decided not to grow any vegetables and to grow just dahlias in my veg plot. So I had a lovely few nights in the winter cruising through the National Dahlia Collection, deciding on which varieties to grow. So I think I ordered about 70 plants and I can comfortably get those in my vegetable garden. And that particular year, by August, I was literally drowning in flowers. I just didn't know what to do with them. I had so many. I was giving them away left, right and centre. I'd started the Instagram, public Instagram site, in the hope of connecting with other people who were addicted to dahlias like me, and was amazed with the number, the response I got. And now I talk to people all over the world about dahlias, which is just such a lovely thing to do. So anyway, I had this glut of flowers, and I thought, well, I wonder if anybody wants to buy them. I mean, I've got no background in floristry at all. But I thought, well, maybe somebody might want to. So I literally loaded up the car with buckets and drove around to my local florist. And again, was overwhelmed by the response. Uh, they were telling me that they just couldn't get hold of flowers like this. And I didn't realise that dahlias don't travel well out of water. So the majority of florists at the time would import their flowers. So they would arrive battered and bruised in boxes and really not, not very usable. So... When I asked more questions, it would appear that I might be able to sell locally in a way of funding my obsession. So we have a field as well connected to our house. So I made the decision to plough up part of the field and put in some extra beds, never with the intention of filling all the beds. But obviously, once you start ploughing an area, you may as well plough a decent area. So I ended up with these five 25 metre beds. And as I say, I think in the first year, I've had filled one and a half. And the second year, I'd filled three. And then from then on, 
they were just all filled because a bit like a handbag, you know, if you've got the growing space, you end up filling it regardless of whatever your intentions are. And especially with dahlias as well. So, and that, that's where my tiny business, and I, I must stress it, it is a tiny business. That's where it all started. So I slowly, again, through Instagram, built up a number of customers who are predominantly wedding and event florists because dahlias are perfect for those kinds of situations and in the area that I live there are quite a lot of wedding venues so also there are quite a lot of wedding florists um so that's where it all started what was your training before becoming a grower oh well nothing involved with horticulture at all I'm actually um, an electronic engineer by training and that's what I did when I first started work and I found my first job I think I did the well, I know I did the signal processing for a missile guidance system, so nothing to do with flowers at all. <laughs> but when my children were around 10 and 8, I stopped work to be at home more with the children because the job I did was very much a full-time job. And as your children growing up, I wanted to be less and less demanded on, really, and be around for all the fun things like the netball matches and all those kind of things. So I stopped work, and that's when I started doing I've always been very keen on gardening but I, that's when I started growing my vegetables and expanding my growing area and so on so um the growing is just purely from doing I've got no horticultural training at all but I think I do cheat slightly because I do have fantastic soil we're in the middle of Cheshire farmland here so I'm surrounded by potato fields so potatoes are tubers just like dahlias. So they obviously love the land that I'm on. So I did have a head start in that point of view. And then I heard about a fantastic organisation in the UK called Flowers from the Farm, which is a network of flower farmers throughout the UK. And we have a Facebook group and we have regular meetings. And it's all about providing information and support because most flower farmers do work on their own. So it can be quite an isolating job, but through the flowers from the farm, I've learned so much and I've met some amazing growers. And also through flowers from the farm, I did um, a course called The Business of Selling Flowers, which helped me in learning how to convert what was ostensibly a hobby into more of a a mini business, as it were. So that's how I got going, really. That's wonderful. What year did you first bring your flowers around to florists? What was the first year of sales? I think that was 2016. And that was at the end of that year when I suddenly Mm -hmm. realized I've got so many flowers, I didn't know what to do with them. So I only really started selling properly in 2017. And it was on a very small scale. And it's just sort of built from there. But as I say, it was always meant to be just something for me to do. So I never wanted to employ somebody. Although I do get help when I'm desperate and I've got a friend's son who's always keen to earn a bit of extra cash. And although he's not done any gardening, he absolutely understands what we need to do. So he's invaluable as far as the help is concerned. I always say when Howell comes, we get the work of three people done rather than just two people. So you've already told us a little bit of your growing space, the location and some of the specifics. How many plants do you have now? What are you sort of working with? So I've got, I'd say, just under 550 plants. So in the five 25-metre beds, I plant a double staggered row. And in each bed, I'd say there are between 80 to 100 plants. And then 
in my vegetable garden, which was the original growing area. I predominantly grow my cafe au lait in there and also some of the taller varieties. And I do a few little experiments like this year. I've been experimenting with direct planting tubers as opposed to bringing them on in the greenhouse first. And then so I wanted to plant the ones that were direct planted and then the ones that were brought on in the greenhouse right next to each other. So I, I did that in the vegetable garden and actually I did it in the field as well so I, I wanted to vary it in different areas so I do, do things like that in the vegetable garden but as I say it's predominantly the cafe au lait. The thing with the vegetable garden is that I laid it out in a very lovely ornamental way which is very pretty but completely useless as far as getting a flower trolley in there. It's really difficult to get a wheelbarrow. When the plants are big and if it's been raining you do get wet in there because the paths are quite narrow. Whereas when I laid out the field beds, I wanted big paths between the beds. So there's plenty of room to get my husband and sit on mower without him wrecking the fencing or whatever. (laughs) And also plenty of room for a wheelbarrow, plenty of room for the flower trolley and plenty of room to work. So the the field beds are laid out much better, but the, the vegetable plot is still this ornamental layout. And because I tend to cut the cafe au lait, there's no reason why anybody else needs to go in there. So I don't mind getting wet, but obviously I don't want customers going in there and getting wet. Right. Whereas in the field beds, there's much more room and nobody needs to get wet if needs be. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you cut the cafe au lait yourself? Oh, because I'm a bit of a control freak and I don't trust anybody else to cut them properly. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Because it varies on some customers don't need a particularly long stem length. So I know the stem length that I can get away with that's the minimum. But the cafe au lait in particular, because, you know, everybody's precious there. And for instance, I was lucky enough to be invited to take part in the Strawberry Hill House Flower Festival this year. And I was doing a drive display as well as a fresh display. I knew for the drive display that because they were going into headdresses, I didn't need long stem length. So I was cutting those quite short stems just to get them dried ready for the headdresses that we were making for the flower festival. So, yeah. I don't want to let loose people in that particular area. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> yes. I'm, well, I'm, I'm getting worse, actually. Sometimes I look at flower buckets and I think, oh, can I let those ones go? I'm not sure I can, which is not the right attitude at all. But well, you're, you're an enthusiast first, not a grower. <laughs> yes. yes, exactly. Exactly. I think that enthusiasm really comes through in the social where you share on Instagram, etc. It's really a clear pride and, and love of all of those flowers. So it's wonderful to see. Oh, that's kind. Thank you. I think there were a couple of customers that I ended up having to apologise to this year because I gave them a real flea in their ear because they turned up with dirty buckets. You know, come to my house with dirty buckets. You must be joking. There's no way my flowers are going in dirty buckets. So um, I've had to apologise to more than one or two, I think. (laughs) Yes. Just to back up a little bit, did you garden as a child or was that something you raised with? No, no, not really, no. The first time I got into gardening was actually when we bought this house, which was 34 years ago, and it was a working farm at the time. They had lots of fruit bushes, but as far as a garden was concerned, there was very little. And because we were getting married here, I wanted to have flowers in the garden where the marquee was going to be. Also, none of my friends at the time were into gardening. So I bought myself an encyclopedia and I used to spend my Saturdays when I wasn't working down at the garden centre with the encyclopedia trying to work out what all the different plants were. So for ages, I didn't know how to pronounce things. So for a long time, I called aces, (laughs) acres. And 
I can remember being in somebody's garden saying, oh, that's the most beautiful cotton Easter. And he said to me, oh, my gosh, I've been calling it a contoniaster for years. And I said, oh, no, no, I think you might be right and I might be wrong because I just I didn't know anybody. Yeah. <laughs> also gardens. So, so that's where I started, really, just in developing our own garden here. We only inherited two pear trees from the previous occupants and then we've developed the garden from there. Having said that, I would say I am not a brilliant gardener at all. I, I really struggle in that respect. So the vegetables were just really appealed to me because I did a four plot rotation. Everything went in straight lines. It really appealed to, you know, my sort of systematic way of thinking. And the same with the dahlias. I have a white border. I have a red, yellow and orange border, a burgundy border, peachy tones. Everything goes in a straight line. I know the spacing. I don't have to think about anything clever like design or when things are coming up because it's all part of a routine. So I think I'm a farmer at heart rather than a gardener at heart. Yes, or, or an engineer at heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Seeing how you, you really celebrate that order, it makes sense. You often, I think, describe the form of the flowers. You sort of appreciate that order too, maybe. Yes, absolutely. Well, they're, they're just amazing. They are amazing. Sometimes, especially with a cafe au lait, when it's unfurling, it's a bit like origami. Just all the different stages. And actually, that was one of the lovely things about the, doing the Strawberry Hill Flower Festival. The floral designer who was using my flowers was very much into not just doing a flower arrangement. She wanted the flowers going to be used to decorate the staircase in Strawberry Hill House, which is the most beautiful staircase. And she wanted them to look like they were growing through the banisters and everything. So she specifically wanted as much foliage on the plants as possible, on the on the stems as possible. Whereas normally mm-hmm. my customers just want all the foliage ripped off. And she also wanted as many buds. And then I was saying, well, you know, they look really nice when they're just unfurling. And she loved that idea as well. So that was a joy to be involved. She wanted to celebrate the growing as well as the flower itself. So that that was really special to be involved with. And I'd like to do more things like that. Yeah, yeah. You say that you were just wanted to fill, you know, a garden with flowers. Why you were even interested in flowers? Or is it just sort of everyone likes flowers at a wedding? Well, I think having refurbished the house, the house that we bought was needed completely gutting. And so that nurturing process of gutting and refurbishing the house, then just naturally, then once we finish the house, look outside the window and think, Oh, I've got a manky hedge and two lovely pear trees. And actually, as it's turned out, they're very ancient pear trees, but nothing else in the garden or apart from fruit bushes and so on. So, yeah, it was just a natural progression. And then once you start in the garden, for me, that that having your hands in the soil, and I know it's now been proved that is there something that the soil actually having your hands in the soil, it gives us some micro, yeah. which that nurturing process of bringing plants on and seeing them come to flower, even putting the, the garden to bed at the end of the season, cutting back, that whole cycle just really appealed to me. And then, then there was a natural progression into the vegetables. Again, seeing that whole cycle from seed to vegetables to being on the plate, it was just magic as far as I'm concerned to think that all that can come from a tiny little seed it's just incredible and I think once anybody gets involved with gardening and the nurturing process 
Although I have to say, when I first started growing um, potatoes, we have a friend who's a potato merchant and would plant tens of thousands of acres of potatoes. And Nigel, my husband, came outside to find me with a ruler, making sure that I put my potatoes at the six-inch depth that they were required. And he, he just looked at me and he said, do you think Stuart goes to this much trouble? I said, oh, no, I'm probably not. But, you know, it says six inches, like, so I've got to put them in at six inches. Yeah. So I'm a bit like that with the dahlias, I'm afraid. You know, they have um, a stick which I mark out 50, 60, 70 and 80 centimetres. So now that I've grown them for so long, I know that blackjack needs more space and that cafe au lait needs more space. And I know that the other varieties can have less space. So I know exactly what spacing works for me now. So, yeah, that all appeals to me, really, that sort of order. And I think also growing the one thing, I know it sounds like a bit boring, but but I, I have a routine. I think I'm in complete awe of all the growers who grow so many different things because they are continuously juggling greenhouse space. Things are going in the cold frame. Things are growing in the ground, whereas it's quite easy for me. I know March, the tubers come out. I do my dividing. In April, they'll be going into pots. In May, they'll be going in the ground. So I have this recognisable routine. I think it suits my mentality. Absolutely. Well, I think that it seems like the dahlias, I mean, I think of them as a robust flower that they, I always encourage new gardeners to to grow them because I think you sort of put this potatoy thing in the ground and it gives you flowers upon flowers as long as you can keep up with it. Yeah, I, I do think they are a perfect flower for people to begin with because you can be really quite mean to them. You know, you can cut them really hard and they do grow like triffids. So it's a good one to cut your teeth on and, and to learn because no matter what you do, they, they tend to keep growing back. In fact, because I don't use any chemicals of any description, if people are always sending me pictures of dahlia diseases and saying, oh, this is happening to my dahlia, what do you think it is? And I say, well, because I'm never going to use chemicals, I never bother to find out what the issue is. What I do is I cut them straight back. So if they've got really diseased looking leaves, I just cut all the stems right back as far as I can to remove any disease. That that foliage will go on the bonfire. And if they regrow back with healthy growth, that's good. If the regrowth is still not healthy, then I actually just pull the plant up. Because what what's the point in me researching exactly what the issue is? Because I'm not going to do anything with it anyway. I might use, would always use, say, a foliar spray of liquid seaweed to give them a bit of a boost. And I've recently been introduced to Epsom salts, which I've I've never used before. So I will research more into that. That's more of a natural thing. And last year I used to use a an organic mix of essential oils, which was rosemary oil, peppermint oil and marigold oil, which I was recommended by an exhibition grower who said that all the exhibition growers use that particular mix as a way of keeping aphids off their blooms. So I was using that last year and it's supposed it's completely organic. But then I thought, well, that that'll deter the ladybirds and I want ladybirds. And I think, again, with dahlias, I'm quite lucky because by the time the dahlias have got going, the ladybirds are really in their full swing. So now I don't use anything at all. I just make sure that I leave all my field margins quite messy. So I've got lots of nettles. I'm working in conjunction with a lady called Hannah from the Cheshire Wildlife Trust, 
who's been advising me on how to increase the biodiversity in my field to again increase natural predators. So we now have hedgehogs. I have an army of ladybirds and literally I am so keen on nurturing those that if I bring a bloom inside and it's got ladybird in, the ladybird goes back outside and it is conveniently positioned on an appropriate plant. Yes. So, and it's not taken long for me to see a marked improvement in the flowers. Another pest that has caused me issues before is a thing called a thrip. And the only reason I, I knew I had it thrips was because I went on my Plows from the Farm Facebook group and said, all my white dahlias are coming up brown. They, they were literally coming up streaked with brown tinges on the petals. And I, I couldn't understand what was going on. I thought, have I put something in the soil that's now coming up through the plants? And I was told that this was thrip. And there, all I did, again, I just deadheaded the lot and the plant grew through it. So I'm a firm believer in live and let live and letting the biodiversity rule flower beds, really. So I promise you, I haven't used any chemicals at all this year and certainly no slug pellets. And the thing I find with slugs I had a plant, which I did post about on my Instagram feed, that had been absolutely decimated slugs. And I thought, right, that one's, that's not going to survive. I'll replace it with, I've always got spare plants hanging around. Forgot about it completely. And a week later, happened to be walking past it and thought, oh, yes, I was supposed to replace that plant with another one. And in that week, it had regrown and it had really put on a spurt. And so I thought, right, I'll leave it and see what happens. It's now one of the healthiest plants in the whole bed. So I think it, as far as slugs are concerned, because I know this is a big concern for people, um, if you can plant your dahlias out in an open situation so that they don't have anywhere for the slugs to hide, then I think the natural predators will, will do the looking after for you. So the ones in the garden, the dahlias in the garden, they do tend to get more eaten by slugs because there's always another perennial plant near it or a shrub somewhere for the slugs and the snails to hide. Whereas out in the field, all the dahlias go out in one go, so they're all growing up together. So there's far more open space. And then by the time they've got to a foot or two foot, well, they can withstand any kind of damage anyway. Absolutely. Sometimes I, I occasionally find a slug asleep in one of the petals and doesn't seem to have done any damage. So, no. yeah, I would really, really encourage people to really hold back on using chemicals, if at all possible. That's just wonderful. It's interesting about that one plant. It's almost like pinching it out or something like it's sort of revved up because it was under stress and, you know, you had the right soil, you mulch so it could bounce back. Absolutely. Keep your plants healthy. I knew it had had plenty of feed and, and, you know, you don't want to overfeed it either because you do end up with weaker stems. So I knew it had had a good start in life. So if it was healthy, and, and I think you're absolutely right, a bit like sheep pinching out grass, they make a great job of making the perfect lawn, as it were. Right. Yeah, I think that particular plant, it just grew through it. And now it's still going strong now, actually. So they seem to have done it a favour. Absolutely. And all the hedgehogs can eat the, eat the slugs. <laughs> yeah, I think there, there's a, some fantastic um, statistics. Something that they Do they eat like 200 slugs a night or something? Something incredible, yeah. <laughs> More than anyone could reasonably go through at night and, you know, pluck them off. <laughs> exactly. In the vegetable plot as well I have a small pond so always got frogs hanging around the place and in the field where the main field beds are we've had two ponds dug this year as well so again doing everything we can to increase the biodiversity 
as best we can. And I do feel that it's definitely a case of the less you do, the less you need to do. So this is what Hannah has taught me about leaving my field margins really rough and overgrown. So there are places for the hedgehogs to make homes and for the beneficial wildlife. But there are all sorts of butterflies and all sorts of beneficial insects which feast on the aphids. So, yeah, we're hoping to find a natural balance. That's wonderful. You mentioned foliar feed. What sort of program do you use in terms of mulch? Yeah. So generally, because I don't want to do anything in the winter because I'm lazy, during the winter, I will make sure that the beds are obviously empty, but just to avoid them getting overrun with weeds or and also to give some protection from the weather, I will bung on as much mulch as I can get my hands on. So that's all homemade compost or leaf mulch. Or um, this year I've been using sheep fleece, actually, and in Cheshire, surrounded by other farms. And quite a lot of the sheep fleece is waste product. You know, there's a certain amount that they can't sell to the wool marketing board. Right. So I've been able to get that just as a a free thing from one of my neighbours. So that seems to be working quite well as a way of keeping moisture in, keeping the weeds down. So, and I've got another source of sheep fleece, which I'm hoping I'll be able to cover the rest of the beds over the winter. Because with being on heavy clay, that's the only thing. If I leave the beds exposed, by the time it comes to planting the dahlias out, the soil has gone like concrete. And again, I'm trying to do the no dig philosophy. So trying to let the worms do all the work. So trying not to rotivate and things like that. So Yes, so over the winter, I will basically make sure that the beds are well mulched. And then I get my tubers out in March and I will do all my dividing in March. That's just personal choice. I find that by over the winter, they they may shrunk a little bit. So they're easy to pull apart as far as dividing. Or else, if needs be, I will just get a pruning saw and chop them up into pieces. And again, if they're in the growing mode, I think those wounds will heal better if they're growing rather than if they're sat in a box. And this is my personal theory, that over the winter that those wounds could develop into rot. So I prefer dividing in the spring. That makes sense. And then that's when I popped my dahlias up, although I've had a lot of success with planting the, the tubers direct in the ground. So I will be doing a lot more of that. In fact, I suspect this year I will be only bringing on less than half of my tubers in the greenhouse and I will be planting most of them direct in the ground. So the ones that I planted brought on in the greenhouse, I potted them up at the beginning of April, put them in the greenhouse, brought them on, middle of May, started hardening them off, so brought them out of the greenhouse to harden them off and get them ready to being out in the outside world. And they went in the ground around the 25th towards the end of May. And the ones that I direct planted I just literally dug a hole, put them in the ground. I always add a bit of fish blood and bone meal to the planting hole. And they went in the ground on May the 18th. And I was amazed that there was only, in some cases, a very most seven days difference in flowering from the ones that went direct in the ground. So again, if people don't have a greenhouse, you don't need a greenhouse. Now, obviously, I'm I'm dealing in UK growing conditions. But I think over in the US, you get catapulted into summer, really, don't you? So I think it would work even better for you that you could just plant your tubers direct in the ground. They took ages to get going. I was so sceptical about the whole thing and literally thought, this is a waste of time, waste of time, waste of time. And then once they got going, I thought, oh, 
gosh, they are growing quite quickly and they soon overtook the other ones. And now those plants are healthier and bigger than the ones that I brought on in the greenhouse. So I'll be doing a lot more of that. That's so interesting. Are those plants in the greenhouse, either the ones you used to do or the ones that you will continue to do, are are you also taking cuttings or are you just dividing? Well, I don't normally take many cuttings because I have only have an unheated greenhouse and I don't want to use artificial heat from a sustainability point of view. So if I am taking cuttings, it's to increase my stock of I've got um, two varieties which I absolutely love and I can't get hold of anymore called gene fairs and pink gene fairs. So I always take cuttings of them because they don't overwinter very well. And no matter how many cuttings I take, I always end up with the same number of plants because some of the tubers don't make it through the winter. So I'll take cuttings of those. And yes, I do it as a way of increasing stock because, as I say, I don't want to use artificial heat. So there's no point in me I can't take cuttings until I've actually got some cutting material. So for me, that would be sort of the beginning of May, which is quite late in terms of cuttings. You know, the big dahlia growers, they will have their tubers on heat mats from January onwards, and they'll be taking cuttings from then on. And there's no doubt that you get, if you want to be growing dahlias for exhibition purposes, then cuttings is the way to go. You get the best blooms and the strongest stems and the healthiest plants from cuttings rather than from individual tubers. Although I have to say I've had a lot of success with heavily dividing my tubers and found that I've had really strong and vigorous plants from dividing right down even into individual, I think they call them chicken legs, I call them sausages, but, you know, down to an individual tuber. Right, breaking each tuber, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I've had a lot of success with getting very vigorous plants from doing that as well. But next year, I hope to be more involved with breeding dahlias. So I'm going to be collecting more seed this year. So a lot of my greenhouse space will be taken up with bringing up on the seedlings, which is why I wanted to experiment with the direct planting with the tubers. But as I say, I was amazed with the results. And it's almost like there was nothing to check the growth. Mm -hmm. So once the tubers actually got growing, much as it was painful at the start, but once they did get going, they were just off, absolutely off and running. And as I say, those have been my healthiest plants. Yeah. I also think sometimes for dividing in the spring, the eyes are a little easier to see on each tuber because they're starting to sprout. Whereas in the winter, you're sort of thinking, what? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. Totally agree with that. And then how do you do your storage? And I should say where I am in California, we can just leave them in the ground. Lucky you. Lucky you. Yes. So over the years, I've done all sorts. So when I when I first started with dahlias, and I only had a few, I used to lift them, turn them upside down. So I always cut them down so I've got about 20 to 30 centimetres of stem on them, mainly so I've got a handle more than anything else. So I cut the stems down to about 20, 30 centimetres, always attach my label to the stem, and I usually do that with a rubber band. Turn them upside down, and I leave them for about... in. Uh, we have a drive-through garage and um, I also have a large agricultural shed which we inherited with the house. So the dahlias can go undercover there. They won't get frosted if we do have a frost. And so I turn them upside down, lean them up against the side of the shed or I'll bring out big planks of wood just so that they're tipped up enough for the moisture to drain out of the stems. And I'll leave them not like that for two or three weeks. And then I trim off all the the straggly bits of 
you know, extra roots, that's unnecessary. It's not going to produce the roots from next year that new roots will form from the base of the tubers. So I trim all those off, cut the stems down to maybe three or four inches. Then I pack them in banana boxes with wood shavings. And I find that works really well and I can get quite a lot of tubers. I don't worry too much about them. I don't have them jammed up against each other, but I make sure I put, I use horse bedding from my local farm supply. So I get big bales of sawdust from my local farm supply shop and I'll sprinkle sawdust in there. And then I pack as many tubers as I can in each box. And then they go into one of my outbuildings, which is cold and dark and very slightly damp. So I've noticed with some of the American growers, you struggle with making sure that your your tubers don't dry out too much. Whereas over in the UK, I think we're a bit more, we don't want them to get too damp. So I find that the boxes works really well because by the time I pull them out in March, the tubers have been able to breathe. So the boxes almost feel a bit damp, but they're not soggy. So it's finding that balance between not letting them dry out too much, but also not letting them get too wet. So I definitely wouldn't store them in plastic boxes because I think they would sweat in there. Mm-hmm. And I think you would get the dahlias mulch rotting in that situation. But before I had 500 tubers to store, I would even, after I'd let them dry out a bit, I would repot them into fresh pot, potting compost and put them into my frost-free outbuilding. And water very, very lightly so that, that just so that they weren't in totally dry compost and then just forget about them and then not bring them out until March and put them in the green straight into the greenhouse. So I've done that. I've also piled them up in a pile at the back of the shed and they still survived. So all sorts of things, really. But for the precious ones, I really like this banana boxes and wood shavings. Also, it means that. Much as a banana box is quite big, it's a size that I can handle on my own. I'm not not made of muscle, as it were. So everything I handle has got to be able to be manipulated by myself. So I'm not, if I have big plastic crates, also it's plastic and I don't want to be using too much plastic, but that adds another weight to whatever I'm handling. Yeah, so it works for me in terms of being able to manage that myself. That's wonderful. It seems like you have learned so much either from this flower network and also just from reading. Are there any books or resources in particular that you've relied on? Well, I'm loving Christine from Santa Cruz Dahlias. I'm loving her How to Breed Dahlias. I'm loving that book. And I would say that most of the stuff I've got, in the UK we have something called the National Dahlia Society. So I've got some little booklets from them. I also have a book, I don't think it's on this bookshelf here, by a chap called Andrew Vernon, who wrote The Plant Lover's Guide to Dahlias, which I learned an awful lot from that. And as it turned out, he ended up following me on Instagram and he only lives 10 miles down the road. So we've actually become really good friends. That's great. Another thing through Instagram, you know, there was me telling my children, be careful of social media. And there I am inviting strangers around to my house. <laughs> and he's become a really, really good friend, actually. So yeah, I loved his book. And that was He did a huge amount of research. He even went to Mexico, where dahlias originated from, to do all the research for the book. So that was hugely useful. And obviously, I've got the Florette book as well on dahlias. That was very useful. I'm the kind of person who I like to go and do things as a way of learning. So I've done quite a lot of workshops. There's a fabulous grower here in the UK called Richard from Withy Pitts Dahlias. 
he runs like a masterclass workshop and I've done one of his workshops which was fantastic on taking cuttings and yes and from talking to people like David Hall from Halls of Heaven who is uh, one of the top suppliers of dahlias in the UK that's been invaluable as well so yeah I like to talk to people go on workshops I'm also one of those people who thinks sometimes I know a little bit that well that uh, yeah I'll listen to that but actually I've found this so I've done a lot of trial and error as well. And I think it does depend on your your particular situation. The, a couple of years ago, I had my worst growing season because we had so much rain here in the UK, in particular in June. The weather was shocking. And that was just as the dahlias had gone in the ground. And I think it really checked their growth. Also, with me being on heavy clay, the beds were really, really waterlogged. And I just think my dahlias didn't like that at all. So the next year... Actually, from talking to Andy Vernon, this friend of mine, we discussed whether actually ridging the beds up. You know how when you're growing potatoes, they're grown in ridges. So we discussed this and I thought, yeah, I'm going to try ridging my beds up. So that's what I I do now. When the dahlias have come out of the bed at the end of this season, I will actually go round all the way around the bed and take all the soil from around the outside and make like a ditch around the outside so that there is there's quite a big difference between the height of the bed and the grass paths around the outside. So it just gets the tubers up and out of any moisture that's, if we did have another summer like we did. As it's turned out, we've not had one as bad, but when we do get a lot of rain, then the water tends to sit in, like it's almost like a moat around the outside of the bed rather than the, the tubers sitting in the wet. Yes, and so you're making a moat and you're also mounding up. Mm. Do you lose any soil with the rain? Well, that's where the sheep fleece has come in useful because what I've done is I I did this with straw one year, but actually I didn't like it because probably not relevant for you, but because we have so much rain here, the straw went to a, a really yucky mess. Mm-hmm. So I didn't I didn't really like that. But the sheep fleece sits really nicely in that. Plus, the birds were absolute pain in the bottom for going and pulling all the straw out and sticking it all over the grass paths. Whereas with the sheep fleece, they've not been interested at all. So I've tucked the sheep fleece in the ditch that I create around the Ah. outside of the beds. So it doesn't look very nice. I don't think you'd want to do it in a garden situation because obviously the sheep fleece is quite dirty and it's got quite a bit of sheep poo on it, which is brilliant because it's extra feed for the dahlias. Right. But it looks a bit weird to have this slightly dirty white stuff all the way around the beds. But from a flower farming point of view, I'm not I'm not bothered about that. I'm just worried about the practicality because of exactly what you said. It Otherwise, the rain would just wash the soil back into the ditch that I'm creating. So that's the theory behind it. That's brilliant. I love that. Because this is the first year that I've done that, I've no idea how long the sheep fleece will take because I'm told it will break down and will actually nourish the soil as well, which is fantastic. So it's like a win-win situation. As far as I'm concerned, it's free. It's going to protect my beds. It's feeding my beds. It's keeping the slugs down because apparently they don't like the texture of the wool. Yeah. It's like a panacea. I'm, yeah. I'm just like, hmm, this could be magic. I love this. Yeah. That's wonderful. It seems like you just had wonderful success and in part buoyed perhaps by your enthusiasm and also certainly by your willingness to learn. You've described one year that was obviously a challenge with the rain. Were there ever moments when you thought it this sort of wasn't working or, and if so, how did you push through? 
Yeah, well, that year when we had the ridiculous amounts of rainfall, I didn't really appreciate how bad a season I'd had. And now I look back at the photographs and see how small the plants were. I mean, they really were pathetic, to be honest. So I think that was quite good that it happened early on because I didn't realise what they should look like. And now I know what they should look like. If I had a season like that, I think I might be giving up, actually. Right. um, But hopefully this ridging up will help. And I suppose it's by having that connection with other people to discuss it with. So having Andy was just, and, you know, we had this long discussion of, oh, do you think about ridging the bed? Yeah, I think that would be a good idea. And then how would you stop the soil just falling back into the ditch again? So that's been fantastic. So the flowers from the farm, having that network of people, I think I would have given up a long time ago if if it had been just me in a field with a with a shovel whereas now we have this program in in the UK I don't know whether you have it over there called Dragon's Den where people they ask for investment in their companies in return they get a dragon who is an experienced business person to advise them so I always liken being a member of Flowers to the Farm to having nearly a thousand dragons floating above my head in the field so I can be in the field thinking oh, this has happened, I don't understand what's going on, you know, or I I remember one year I had marks on my dahlia tubers and I thought, oh my God, they're they're going to, you know, rot and die and everything. And I can just go onto the Facebook group and post a question and say, post a picture and say, this is happening, does anybody else know it? And you can bet your bottom dollar that somebody in the group will have experienced the same thing and said, oh yes, I found that and I did this and I found that that worked or so it's an invaluable resource having flowers from the farm, definitely. Um, this year, the challenge has been really time because they've flowered so well. I've almost had so it tied up with the maintenance of the plants that I've actually been pushing customers away because I can't do everything because I am a one-woman band, as it were. And as I said earlier, it was always meant to be just something for me to do. So I've, I've never really wanted to employ anybody. And also, this is our home, so, you know, it's quite a personal thing. It is like an extension of the garden. Yeah, that's been the fun part of, as well, that the business is sort of, well, this tiny business of mine. My, my husband would laugh because he keeps on saying, you know, a business is something that's supposed to make money, not just make money. <laughs> so, but it is funding my obsession. Yeah, it's it's sort of evolving all the time. And, you know, what I want to do and where I want it to go it's really interesting from that point of view because I'm also now I'm, I'm really into the photography side of things. So, mm-hmm. and that is like a rabbit hole that you can just fall down for four hours. Once I get a bucket of blooms and I'm in the shed with my perfect photography position, Nigel will sometimes come out and say, are we eating tonight? And I'll be saying, but no, the light is perfect, you know. <laughs> totally. So yeah, it's where it will take me and, Doing the Strawberry Hill House, that was fantastic. And then we have a programme here in the UK called Gardener's World, which is like the best garden. Oh, I know it. (laughs) Oh, right. Really? Well, they came to visit this year. So to have Gardener's World here, that was just like, I've died and gone to heaven. You know, that was fantastic. So all these other things, every time I think, oh, I can't do this any longer, I think, ooh. No, and actually, talking to people like you, I really enjoy things like this. And it's all part of the learning process. Yeah. It's a great thing to do. That's wonderful. 
Can you tell a little bit more about your breeding and sort of where you see that going? Yeah, well, that's quite interesting because when I first started growing dahlias, I was really into the big dinner plate varieties. And as I've gone on, my taste has got smaller and smaller. And now I'm into the really tiny little mini pom-poms. But also from working with so many, I'm I'm very much a, a raw materials person. So lots of people say to me, well, why don't you want to do arranging and things? Well, I, I get such a thrill from seeing what people do with my flowers. And I feel that I've done my bit. I've nurtured them. I've got them ready. And hopefully I've got them to a really nice standard. So then it's just a joy to see what people actually do with them. So I've never really wanted to do any more than that. But because of working quite closely with floral designers, I know what they're looking for now. So I feel I'm quite well placed to start dipping my toe in. But I am early days and I, you know, so I'm I'm just starting to make the plans for next year. I will be harvesting some seed this year, but I'll need to think really carefully about what I grow next year. So I'm going to be culling quite a lot of my plants because if you're naturally pollinating the plants, what you want to do is have only the plants with the attributes that you want from flowers that you're breeding. So I'm afraid quite a lot of my reds and yellows will be going. I'm really into the more muted tones. I love the small cactus varieties. I love the small mini pom-poms. So I'm really going to be cutting back on the type of varieties that I'm growing so that I can concentrate on hopefully coming up with the new breeds in the new colours that will appeal to designers. Absolutely. Are you talking about culling from your existing stock or from culling from those seedlings? Well, both really. So the seedlings that I grew this year were from a packet of seed that Florette, Erin Benzekine sent me, which was fabulous. She sent me a complimentary copy of her book. So thank you, Erin. And a small packet of seeds. So I thought, oh, and usually I've got quite big hands. They're sort of the size of shovels. So they're really meant for handling tubers. So I'm, I'm usually rubbish with seeds. But I thought, no, I'll give them a go, give them a go. So actually, I think I've only planted about half the packet that she gave me. And I've been amazed at how many of them I think, well, I think I'll be keeping that one and I'll be keeping that one. So that's been a joy. But obviously this year I'm going to start collecting my own seed as well. And yes, each seed head, I may be telling you something you already know, but in each seed head, it's a bit like children. Every seed will produce a different plant. So from one seed head, you may have only a handful of seeds or you might have 50 seeds. So you've got potential for 50 plants. So as soon as they start flowering, well, I will know which ones I like and which ones I don't like. So those ones, yes, I will be culling. And as I was saying before, from the point of view of breeding, I really like all the dusky tones and the ivories and those sort of colours. So I will either be culling all the other colours in quite a dramatic way or I will grow them in a different area. Mm-hmm. So I'm just sort of thinking about that at the moment, how it will affect what I do next year. So I'm avidly reading and rereading and rereading Christine's book from Santa Cruz, Dahlias, because she also does hand pollination as well. Although from what I can gather, the bees do it 10 times better than we can ever do it. But I really like the idea of the hand pollination, having a go at, at everything as far as the, the pollination is concerned. Right. But I'm really looking forward to it because it'll be, I'll learn so much from having a go just next year. Yeah. Again, not a get rich quick scheme, but none of this is. But I'm certainly 
learning a lot and loving what I'm doing. And that makes me very wealthy in my books. Absolutely. Do you think you would ever make your tubers commercially available or give them on to a farm that wanted to do more intensive tuber development? Oh, yes, definitely. Jephthah, definitely do that. Yes. That seems to be what Christine does. She develops these breeds and then she hands them over to a professional grower who, well, not that she's not professional, but a large scale grower who then grows on her tubers. But yeah, if I could come up with some of the breed, the varieties that she breeds, oh, happy days. Because hers are just beautiful. And we can't get hold of them in the in the UK, which is tragic. I know. I, we need to develop some sort of diplomatic Dahlia mission, <laughs> transfer more. <laughs> definitely, yeah. definitely. I know the Halls of Heaven do export to the US. Right. But they've got all the necessary certification and they have to have the, all the inspections. But they're a big enough organization to be exporting a large enough number of tubers. Uh, I don't ever want to be that big. I've already registered for with, it's called APHA, I can't remember what it stands for, but I've registered with them, so I am allowed to sell excess tubers. Great. As long as it's on a face-to-face basis, I'm not allowed to send them out by post. If I send them out by post, I have to have a plant passport, Okay. which I may do in the future, but at the moment, I have enough people who are local to me who want to buy tubers that I can sell them on a face-to-face basis. So, And then it's just leftover tubers if I've got any spare at the end of the year. Right. Do you have a record and a formal journal, or how do you sort of track your, your projects and what you're, what you're learning? Yeah. Normally what I do is I create a, a photo book at the end of each year with all my, my photographs from each year. And also in the field beds, each year I move the dahlia colours along the bed so that I know what year I took those photographs. So this year, the white bed is the first bed in the field. Next year, it'll be the second bed in the field. So I can tell when I I took various photographs. Actually, Instagram is a fantastic journal because it's got all the information. It's got all my mental notes sort of go into the captions and all the dates are on there. So that's a fantastic journal from my point of view. And I do also have a year diary which has a a page per day and I will write notes in there lots of things it's quite useful to know how long it took me to dig up my tubers last year so thankfully I've got a note in the diary saying it took six days comfortably so I don't need to worry about that I know I need about six days to lift my tubers that's fine and yeah and I'll, I'll write notes on what the temperature is like and for me, I think the, the main growing period is in June. So I'm always writing down what the temperature is doing, what the weather conditions have been. That year when I had a really bad growing year, the temperatures in June were terrible. They were like 10 degrees. And I think the plants just never really put on any growth. Whereas since then, we've had like this year, much as June wasn't baking hot or anything, it was a very even temperature. So there was never anything to check the growth. They just plodded on nicely and put on nice bushy growth and always around that time I'm I'm always pulling out flower buds I don't want the plants putting energy into creating flowers I want them putting energy into growth in June Mm -hmm. and then from July onwards then that's fine they can start flowering the socks off from then on that's a great tip Um, I'm sure that also really helps with the strength of stems later on since it's so much bulkier yeah Yeah. And then once they start flowering, I think you were asking me earlier about what my feeding regime is. And I would use a foliar spray of liquid seaweed 
once they start flowering and that that helps promote the flowers keep the bloom quality going i should do that every seven to ten days but i don't i just do it when i remember and for me it would take me two or three hours to do all 500 plants with an apsac sprayer i think i've maybe only done it three or four times this year because the flowers just kept coming and i if anything i didn't need any more flowers right (laughs) so i thought right now i'll hang back on the feed yeah and then you, you mentioned a, a few that you have in pots now. Any, I know it's impossible to pick among your babies as a favorite, but do you have any that you think a new grower might be delighted with or five that you say every gardener should have? Well, I think if you're growing in pots, one of the absolute joys is to have the bees going bananas around the flowers. And so you really need to either have one of the singles or the colorette types. So that's why I mentioned Sunshine Girl. And I have another one called April Heather. I think there's a US version called Apple Blossom, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that might be very similar to our April Heather. And they have the open centre that the bees absolutely love. So I'd definitely recommend looking at either having a colorette or a single version in a pot. Then I like to mix them up. So if you're going to have a, a selection, it's nice to have a single then a mini pom. So I love Goethe Twilight and Small World. I think those are they're really quite small, maybe four centimetres in diameter. Beautiful, beautiful flowers. And then I've got another one called Cornell Bronze. That's a really good structure. Beautiful burnt orange, I'd say. Not not one of the really vibrant. Some of the dahlia colours can be quite in your face we would say in the UK. But I would say Cornell Bronze has got that nice burnt terracotta feel to it. And another one that I really like, because I love the shape of the head, is called Coral Strand. And that's got almost like a pinky tinge to the petals. That might be quite difficult to get hold of. So it's it's quite difficult for me to say varieties, because then maybe in the US, you wouldn't be able to get those particular varieties. So I would recommend getting Florette's book, the Dahlia book, and going through there and looking for different shapes and sizes because that's what I do in my pot. I like to have the one that I love to walk past right by the back door. So this year I've got Stevie D, which is a little bit similar to one that you call Peaches and Cream, I think. Uh-huh. Quite similar to that. It's a bicolor one, which I don't normally like, but I love this one. So it's got like a, a corally orange center, but white tips to the petals. Um, it's not ramrod straight stems. They tend to be quite meandering. So I love it by the back door. It, it looks absolutely magnificent and it, it's still going strong now. So that's the one that I have by the back door. But the other groups of pots, then I mix it up. So I've got, I'll have a water lily type, a medium sized ball type. Verone's Obsidian is a great favourite of mine. That that one's a single with really interesting shapes, the petals. Yeah. And then a mini pom. So yeah, I think it's nice. Oh, and then the anemone varieties as well as well are, are really nice to have in pots. And the bees and the butterflies like those. But yeah, definitely get a, a couple of singles and colorettes in there as well to get the, the bees interested. That's wonderful. And I guess either for your own enjoyment or for your field, do you have any new varieties that you want to try for next year or that you've ordered? Yes, definitely. As I was saying, my favorite supplier is Halls of Heaven, which do export to the US. 
And so every year I find out what their latest, they always have new varieties each year. So I've already placed my orders for next year. But last year I had a variety called Jasudi Mercury from them, which is, again, that sort of terracotta, rusty, pinky, gorgeous, gorgeous colour. And it's a small cactus variety as well. So I absolutely love that. So I'll be ordering more of the Jasudi range. So generally, the varieties are named after the person who bred them or they'll have a house name. So, for instance, there's Jasudi Mercury, Jasudi Andromeda, Jasudi Hercules, and those will all be bred by the same breeder. So generally, I find if I like one from a family, I'll like the others from that family as well. So, for instance, there's a fantastic variety called Barbary d'Amour, which is a burgundy pom-pom variety. Oh, it's a medium pom, I would say. And it's a fantastic, absolutely beautiful. So I, I knew that I would like the other Barbaries. So I've grown Barbary Drum, Barbary Pip, Barbary Vulcan, Barbary Sultan, Barbary Ball, Barbary Jester. I've grown them all because I know I'll, I'll like all of them. Uh, the same with the Rycroft series, the same with the Rossendale series. I grow Rossendale Luke, Rossendale Peach, Rossendale Natasha. So I generally know if there's a particular family that I like, then I search out the other varieties in that particular family and, and I know I'll like the shape of those ones as well. Rossendale flamenco I grow as well. So yeah, there are lots. This is wonderful. The show notes are going to be very long with all these links. <laughs> <laughs> And then told us about your season. As we sort of transition into winter, do you have any traditions that you'd like to share? Yeah, well, I've started looking at the plants now. And much as we haven't had a frost yet, usually I wait for the frost to kill off the foliage. And that will be like a trigger for me to start digging up. But I've since learned actually from doing one of my workshops that you don't have to have that trigger. We just think we need the frost to kickstart the tuber into dormancy as it were but you don't need that at all so I'm looking at them now and thinking well I think they look a bit tired I know it sounds ridiculous but I sort of feel that way so I, I do think I might start digging up next week and giving them a rest they've been fantastic they need some time off now and they need to just consolidate all that goodness in the tuber over winter so yeah I'm going to start digging up next week and and I put them all into my big shed and I have an old fleece cover that if the temperatures are going to drop significantly, then I will cover the tubers with that. And then I will trim them up and start storing them in the banana boxes. Previously, it was a quiet time as well anyway, because I didn't have any flowers to sell. But now that I've started drying the dahlias, I also have dried flowers and those have become much more popular. So actually, there's not that much downtime for me. It's I don't know if it's the same in the US, but in the UK, dried flowers have come way back into fashion. So I've got a lot more demand for the dried as well. So yes, I'm I'm going to have to juggle selling the dried as well as making sure that I get everything put to bed before. I like everything to be away and tidy and done before the beginning of December. That makes sense. Any last thoughts that you might share with anyone who is thinking about growing dahlias either just for themselves or or even maybe dipping a toe into the idea of local sales or something yeah i would definitely definitely have a go they couldn't be easier really and there i think there are lots of myths about how they need nurturing and they're tricky and they're awkward and all the pests will come and eat them and and it's not like that at all as long as you've got a nice sunny open position that's what i'd recommend sunny and open so they're not competing for daylight with other shrubs and things or a pot 
have a go. They're not expensive and don't worry too much. You can't kill them because they just keep coming. And they do, as we've discussed, they grow like triffids. So it's very difficult to kill a dahlia. Yes. Well, thank you so, so much for all of this. You've shared so much already on your Instagram, and it's just such a pleasure to be able to meet you and speak with you. And you've given a mini masterclass in dahlias just in this discussion. (laughs) So thank you so much. Oh, that's an absolute pleasure. It's been lovely to talk to you, Jess. Thank you so much for listening. You'll find links for everything we've discussed in the show notes or on our website. To get early access to our guest list and information about bonus episodes, gardening tips from our guests, and more, sign up for the newsletter at violetearstudio.com. Thank you.